0: Following audio is from Crossroads Church in West Ossipee, New Hampshire. For more information about Crossroads Church, you can go to www.crossroadsossipee.com. Good morning. Again, it brings me great joy to greet you in that way. Say good morning. Uh, We have a lot to praise the Lord for. In my household, anyway, Uh, again, um, just thankful for the Lord's protection on Sam and Andrew on Friday. And um, if you drive on Route 28 on the way to Wolfboro, you'll see their signature on the side of the road with a curled-up guardrail. Um, But uh, as we've we've been talking about, um, you know, 18 inches one way or the other, um, either that guardrail hits dead center on the van, and they're in a lot different shape, or they miss the guardrail altogether and go down over a very steep embankment and also could be in very different shape than they are this morning. Uh, their complaint yesterday was they felt like they had played a football game the night before. Uh, so we'll take that, absolutely. So I'm also praising the Lord that I'm able to speak to you in this way this morning. Uh, continued uh, blessing for me. Um, and that uh, I haven't had any struggle with speech uh, for you start <laughs> yeah something like that pretty close to a month. Um, and another another blessing to go along with that is uh, I can read. <laughs> I'm I'm very excited about that. Excuse me. Um, I do, of course I I do read and I study uh, for my sermon every week, but. I lock myself alone in my study, and there's no distractions and no shiny objects or squirrels or other voices. Um, but uh, now I, I'm reading a couple of books for recreation, <laughs> just because I like to read. I just haven't been able to do it. So I'm, I'm very uh, blessed by that. Last night, I started reading, um, don't don't be surprised by this title, uh, The Anarchist Workbench, um, it's not like a political anarchist, but an aesthetic anarchist, a, a hand tool woodworking, that sort of thing. Um, I was watching that while the TV is on, and the room is full of people having conversation, and uh, I really enjoyed that reading, so I'm praising the Lord for that. so anyway, um, so we're going to be back in First Peter this morning. We're going to look at First Peter chapter one. Um, We're going to look at verses 13 through 16, and that's page uh, 1014 in the Pew Bibles, if that's helpful to you. And as we consider this text, I want to start out by asking the question uh, of you, what comes to your mind, just consider this um, for yourself, but what comes to your mind when you consider the words hope and holiness, hope and holiness? And as you consider those words, all I can say is that I hope you're right uh, in your definition. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah. <clears throat> My sense of humor has not been repaired. I'm sorry. <laughs> so let's look at our text for this morning and examine our understanding of these two ideas of hope and holiness and how the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Peter ties them together. So, 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ing- ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, so also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written... You shall be holy, for I am holy. Let's pray. Father God, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have the freedom to gather around it, um, either here in this building or watching online. Lord, we thank you for your many blessings uh, to us as a people. We pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us now, uh, that you would instruct us from your word, that we would know you more. And be conformed to your image. We love you, Lord, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, our first order of business in dealing with our text this morning, we have a real problem in word number one, therefore. We can't start with a therefore, we need to find out what it is therefore it doesn't It just doesn't get any better than this, folks. <laughs> this is it so we can't just we can't just ignore it uh, because Peter's thoughts here are connected to what he was just saying, uh, and what he is addressing here is based on the thoughts um, that he had shared previously and if you'll remember from last week um, uh, earlier in this chapter, Peter was talking about. The great worth of the gospel, the great treasure that is ours, um, that is salvation through faith alone in Jesus Christ. And the whole crux of Peter's exhortation so far is to remember the great worth of our salvation that faith in Christ procures for us and the great glory that awaits us at his return. And it's these thoughts, understanding the great gift that we've been given and and the great gift that is awaiting us at Christ's return. It's those thoughts that will bear us up in times of trial. So, with that thought in mind, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now think about your salvation, what we talked about last week. Christ himself predicted it. The prophets diligently studied it, plumbed its depths. They served the church through it, through their writing. The Holy Spirit brought it through the evangelists and the apostles and even the angels long to look into it. Our salvation, indeed, is a great gift, which is why Peter refers to it as the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, this is a future event. So, grace is an already-not-yet kind of thing. We already have grace because we have the gift of faith, in Jesus Christ for our salvation. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. It is a gift from God. And that's what the, the Greek word that's translated grace means. It's charis. It means gift, an unearned favor. The gift is ours. The gift that is ours is the completion. The the gift that Peter's talking about here is the gift of the completion or perfection of our salvation. When Jesus returns, now to complete our salvation doesn't mean that we are completely saved, or that. Sorry, hold on. That we are not completely saved. This is a problem with this speech thing; is it happens really fast for me, and I feel it's like sometimes I'm stumbling downstairs. So forgive me. To complete our salvation doesn't mean that we aren't saved now. Or that Jesus' work on the cross and his resurrection wasn't all that was necessary for our salvation. That's not what Peter means. So I imagine it like this. If you were lost at sea, in the water, treading water alone, in the open ocean, you are in peril. Right? Uh, And left on your own, you will surely drown. Um, But along comes the Coast Guard. And they throw you a lifesaver, a life ring on a rope, a floating ring to keep you from sinking. Well, that life ring is like the gospel, right? It's thrown to us. It has been and will continue to be tossed to millions who are drowning in their own sin. And unfortunately, some people reject that life ring. Some people bunk some on the head and they sink because it just doesn't deliver in the right manner. Anyway, many reject it and are content to drown. But those happy few who choose to grab on to that life ring, they're saved, right? They're saved. But is their salvation complete? No, they're still in the ocean. They have the life ring, they're not going to drown, but I would say that they're not fully their salvation is not complete until they're dragged into the lifeboat, until they're back on the Coast Guard cutter, until they're back on land, until they're back home. Then their salvation is complete. That's how the return of Christ completes or perfects our salvation. Are we saved before Christ's return? Yes. But we're not home yet. So let's look at Peter's main point in these verses, hope and holiness. Hope really is the main thought, and all the other thoughts here are subordinate to it, and they all support it. Peter says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That grace, that gift he's talking about, is the completion of our salvation, when we've been dragged up out of the water, into the lifeboat, back onto the ship, back onto dry ground, and finally at home with our Father. That's the completion of our salvation. So what does it mean to set our hope fully on that wonderful grace? I think first we have to define the word hope because it's often misused. I even misused it in the sermon so far. Hope is not a wish. That's, that's how we use it all the time. Like, I hope we have nice weather for the ball game tomorrow. I hope the furnace gets fixed, so it's not freezing in here. Okay? Hope, hope is not like that. That's not the right use of the word. Hope is a confident expectation of future good. It's not ethereal. It's not some wish. It is concrete. We can hope that the sun will come out tomorrow. Because even if it's behind the clouds, it's up. Right? We can have hope of a, of a future good, of Christ's return. And what we hope for, what we confidently expect, is the grace that is ours at Christ's return. And if we have our hope set on that, if, we, if we, we know that we know that we know, no matter what happens in this life, what happens to us, good or bad, Christ is coming back for us. All right? If we have our hope set on that, our confident expectation is that any time now, the clouds could roll back, the trumpet sounds, and Christ returns. And our salvation is completed. We're no longer in peril of sin and death and the grave. If our hope is set on that, we confidently expect that. What do we have to fear? Oh, hard times. Uh, It's too hard for me, right? I don't have a van anymore. Well, we kind of do, but it's in several pieces. But... that that sort of stuff it's trivial. And I that's not to belittle anyone's problems, you know. Problems are problems and we all struggle with things. But when our hope is fully set that Christ is returning and our salvation will be complete and we get to go home with our Father, all these things are just kind of bumps in the road. John Calvin wrote Whosoever then really wishes to have this hope, let him learn in the first place to disengage himself from the world and gird up his mind that it may not turn aside to vain affections. See, what we hope for, the grace that is ours at Christ's return, is what should get us through trials and should motivate us toward holy living. And that's our second key word, holiness. Peter's supporting ideas of setting our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ at his return. Those supporting ideas, preparing our mind for action, being sober-minded, and living as obedient children to the Father. You know how much I like three-point sermons. These are only three subpoints. The sermon only has one point, so doesn't count. Doesn't count. Thank you. <clears throat> The first idea, supporting idea in verse 13, preparing our minds for action. Translators are funny people, because that's not what Peter said. He actually uses a Greek idiom that is literally translated, and maybe uh, some of, if you have a King James version or older translation, uh, it will re- it'll read this way: girding up the loins of your mind. Now doesn't that sound? Mm, that sounds like Peter, right? To say, "Hey guys, get ready for you know stuff's going to happen." No, he's gird up the loins of your mind. I love, I love that expression. So why, why, what, why would he say something like that? Well, the truth is, in the first century, sadly, there were no pants, and that's why he said that. There were no pants. People wore long tunics and robes that were not conducive to working or to running or to fighting. They weren't. That's not a sweatsuit, right? They are not ready for action. Okay, So when the time came for action, they would have to gather up their long robes and pull them up between their legs and tuck them into their belts. That's girding up your loins, literally, so they wouldn't get all tangled up in the loose fabric. So, you can obviously see how that translates to your mind. (laughs) What does it mean to gird up the loins of your mind? It's almost as if he was saying, prepare your minds for action. Weird. It's exactly how it's translated in English. Prepare your minds for action. In order to prepare our minds for action, to gird up the loins of our mind, we have to gather up all of the loose folds of distractedness and fickleness, like flowing robes, and tuck them into our belts. Because when our minds are set loose in vanity and various lusts and and distractions, we're not truly and sincerely setting our hope on the grace that will be ours at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're still, we're too busy dealing with our floppy knot pants robe thing, right? But that's what we do, right? We've got all of these things that take our attention. We must put aside all distractedness and keep focused on the hope that is ours. To borrow another metaphor from the sea, our hope is like an anchor that keeps us from being tossed about by the waves and winds of the world, of sin, of distractedness. It's what keeps us focused, or should keep us focused, on what's important. In order to embrace that that hope fully, we must gird up the loins of our minds and tuck away all those distractions. And that really is the definition definition of the phrase that Peter uses here translated sober-minded. Right, the idea of being sober-minded uh, truly uh, does parallel the idea of physical sobriety or not being drunk. To be sober-minded is to be in control of one's thinking and not distracted by idleness and irritation and exaggeration and eccentricity. Just general distractedness. To be sober-minded is a conscious avoidance of those things that take our attention away from what's truly important. Being sober-minded is not automatic. It takes conscious effort it takes discipline. And those are dirty words in our time and culture. It takes conscious effort and discipline. J.P. Lang wrote, He who sets his hopes in grace alone acquires the impulse and ability to fulfill the commandment of holiness. Now, this is where, this is where the rubber meets the road. Because holy living, what we're commanded to do here, demands discipline. Holy living demands determination. That's exactly what Peter is telling us. In order to set our hope fully on the gift that is ours at the, of the perfection of our salvation at the return of Christ, we must wrap up all those things that distract us and tuck them away in our belts. We must discipline our minds and be determined to live holy lives. Holy living doesn't just come with time. right? Well, I, I came to know the Lord when I was four years old, and here I am 40 years later, and I've got it. right? Holy living piece of cake because I've been at it this whole time. No, not even close. Not even close. It takes effort and discipline. Verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Here is what obedient children Of the Heavenly Father, do they imitate their dad? They shall be holy, for He is holy. Now, I think holiness, like hope, perhaps needs a more concrete definition in our minds. When you think of holiness, what do you think of? When I think of holiness, I'm reminded of Isaiah 6, 1 through 5, a text that was just drilled into us at Bix. You can look forward to that, Daniel. Isaiah chapter 6, starting at verse 1. I'll read it to you. You don't have to turn there if you don't want. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Like this picture is just amazing in my mind, and my imagination falls so short of the reality. It falls so short of the true holiness of God. But when you think of holiness, and those bright shining lights, and pearly gates, and streets of gold, and that sort of stuff, that isn't holiness. That's not the definition of holiness. Holiness isn't just glowing in the dark. Holiness is not a a light so bright that our mortal, mortal eyes can't bear it. Again, at Bix, years ago, it was explained to me in this way. To be holy, here's where our English is fun. To be holy is to be wholly other. W-H-O-L-L-Y. Holy, completely different. That's what holiness is. Not glowing in the dark and walking on water. It's to be completely different. God is a completely different kind of thing than us. That's why the seraphim cry, holy, holy, holy. It's other, completely other, totally something else. That's what the seraphim is declaring. God is holy, other, a completely different being. And we, as his children also ought to be completely different. Different from what we once were. Before we were his children. Leaving behind all the passions of our former ignorance and being holy in all our conduct. I'd love to get you off the hook with the translations, a little fuzzy on the word all. All. It's uh, translated as all because it means all. (laughs) Lucky us. All our conduct. We don't always like that. J.P. Lang wrote again, Sin darkens the understanding by the cloud of prejudice and false notions. That's the passions of our former ignorance. Before we knew the Lord before we knew Christ. But now that we do know Christ, what is in our hearts must appear in our lives. And that's where we struggle. We say we love the Lord. We don't always act like it. We say we're his children, but we don't always act like it. John Calvin said, wherever the knowledge of God is not, There, darkness, error, vanity, and destitution of light and life prevail. That's not us anymore. Now that we do know God through Jesus Christ, we must pursue holiness. We must pursue sacredness. We must pursue being holy other than what we once were. We've got to let that stuff go. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, well, I I can't be as holy as God. Duh, you're right. Congratulations. You can't. But again, our friend John Calvin said, we ought to advance in this direction towards holiness as far as our condition will bear. And as even the most perfect are always very far from coming up to the mark, we ought daily to strive More and more. What does that sound like to you? It sounds like it requires the secret ingredient, folks effort. It takes effort. Holy living, sober mindedness, minds prepared for action, setting our hope fully on the grace that is ours requires two things. Number one, the health of the Holy Spirit. And number two, effort. We have to work at it. And by his grace, with his help, we strive for it more and more every day. As my pastor growing up used to say, we weren't saved just to sit and soak. Instead, preparing our minds for action Girding up the loins of our mind and being sober-minded, let's set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, we must not be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. But he, as he who called us is holy, we also must be holy in all our conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. God, we are so privileged to be able to call on you as Father, to submit to you as Lord, to have faith in you as Christ our Messiah, and our Savior. Father, if there's any within the sound of my voice that do not know you as Lord, who have not called on you to be Savior, even now, Lord, may they simply call out to you in faith, asking for forgiveness, accepting your death on the cross was for them. that rising again you have completed the work necessary for them to be cleansed from sin for us to be cleansed from sin may we all together submit our lives to you that our minds would be prepared for action not just sitting around and waiting to be more Christ-like waiting to be a better Christian Waiting to be more effective in ministry. Help us, Lord, to pursue it, to do the work, to study your word, to spend time with you in prayer, to share our faith with those around us, to do what is necessary to grow in our faith and our understanding of who you are and what you've done. We really are without excuse. But Lord, we do need your help. We need the reminders. We need uh, your motivation. So we ask for your help. That you would inspire us by your Holy Spirit's power. To seek you in all our ways. To be conformed to holiness in all our conduct. That you might be glorified in our lives. And people that don't know you, that are still drowning in the open ocean would hear of your grace from our very own lips, would observe it in our lives, and would reach out and grab the life ring of the gospel that is available to them. Lord, we ask for opportunities to share that wonderful good news with those around us and that those dear folks that we love would reach out and grab on and be saved. We love you, Lord. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you would like to participate in the mission of Crossroads Church through financial support, checks can be mailed to Crossroads Church, Post Office Box 576, West Ossipie, New Hampshire, 03890.